God, we love you, and we're thankful for today. We're thankful for your presence in this place. We're thankful for your, your, the gift of your son, God. We're thankful just to be able to, to stand or to sit and worship and, and to just be free to do so with other believers and to say, God, you are our God, and God, you are our cornerstone, and we, we trust you, God. We lift up your name. We bless your name, God. We, we sing this praise to you because you deserve it, God. God, this morning I pray that you would, you would speak through me. God, I pray this every week that you would just use me this morning, that my words would not be my words, but they would be your words for your people. We all need to hear from you this morning. No one here came to hear me. God, we come to hear from you, me included. God, we love you. We give you praise. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are finishing our series this morning. Uh, the reason for God. been such a, such a good series. And our small groups have been going. Our small groups have been, uh, been kind of taking a deeper dive into all of these questions that we have talked about. Uh, and from what I hear, they've been just some, some amazing conversations in the Thursday night group. I know our Monday night group has had some great conversations. Uh, and uh, it's, been, it's been awesome the last month and a half. And today, we finish it up. This is the last week for our small groups as well. If you, you can come this week still and come to the small group. I encourage you to do so if you haven't yet been, Monday night or Thursday night, either one. Uh, but, man, this has been such a, such, a good, uh, such a good series for me, even personally, as I've been preparing for all of these and preparing for all of these questions that people have. I mean, we've, we've talked about these five questions. We've talked about the Bible. Uh, why can we trust the Bible? Hasn't science disproven the Bible? Is the Bible just a myth, right? We talked about how we can trust the Bible and how we should, as Christians, put the Bible central in our lives and in our church and everything that we do should, we, should be scriptural-centered. We answered this question, is there, is there really only one way to God? And the answer scripturally is, is yes. Right? Scripture is pretty clear that yes, there is only one way to God. And so, so we talked about that, we dialogued. How do we even talk about there only being one way to God without sounding just ridiculous to people or off-putting or offensive? And, and to, to be certain, the, the gospel is a little offensive to people. Right? This, is, this is the gospel, but yes, there is only one way to God. Is why are there so many rules? Yeah, why why are there so many rules in the church? Why why does why does believing mean I have to obey certain things? Why why are there so many rules? And so that week we talked about how the rules are not necessarily central to our faith. Jesus is central to our faith. And as our relationship with Jesus grows and blossoms, and the rules will come. The rules will be a, a genuine outflow of our relationship with Jesus. It's not about, becoming a Christian is not about subscribing to a list of do's and don'ts. It's about falling in love with, with, with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we grow in Him, and as we begin to live for Him, the rules will come. And this is, that's why there's so many, why are there so many rules? Well, it's not about the rules, it's about Jesus. Week four, now, why does, why does God allow suffering? What a hard question, especially that week that we did it after the, after the shooting in Florida. Why does God allow suffering? Whew. I, I still am kind of reeling from that week. Then last week we talked about why are, the, why are Christians such hypocrites? Why, why are Christians people who, who say they believe but then just don't live it out? Why, why are Christians such hypocrites? And, and last week I... I told you a story, uh, and uh, I didn't finish it, apparently, and people were asking me about the story. So last week, I told you a story about in my ordination interview, a question that I got from, 
from one of the people, and he said uh, about his cousin, my cousin was at this youth event, and he had a genuine experience with Jesus Christ, and, but then he's looked at other teenagers around him who, who also professed this genuine experience of Jesus Christ and, and just said, if this, this has to be fake, it must have just been an emotional thing, I, I don't believe. I'm not going to, to change my life for this. And, and so I told you that I would tell you what I answered, and then I didn't tell you what I answered him. And so... Uh, <clears throat> what I answered him, though, was, was along the same lines of what Jesus said. In, this, in, the, in the last part of the sermon last week, we looked in, in the book of Luke, and John the Baptist calls to Jesus, and he says, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? And Jesus doesn't give him a yes, he doesn't give him a no, he says, what do you see, and what do you hear? And the answer that I gave this, this pastor who asked me this question was, yeah, I think, first of all, an apology is in order. I'm sorry that these Christians did not live up to the standard to which they profess. But follow me as I follow Christ. Are you able to say, what do you see and what do you hear? Can you look at your cousin and say, and follow me as I follow Christ? That was the answer. And that, that's honestly what it takes to be a Christian who is not hypocritical. Can we be able to say these words Follow me as I follow Christ. Yeah, what do you, or if someone would ask you, are you a Christian? Could you answer, what do you see and what do you hear, as, as Jesus did in, in Luke chapter 7? This week is really kind of the ultimate question. And it's a, it's a fitting ending to this series as we talk about this, because this really is the, the, the question about the end. It's the question, uh, how can God be full of love and full of wrath at the same time, how can a loving God send people, good people even, to hell? It's this question of, question of hell. Is it real? Is it, is it fake? Is it just something that we've made up? I, if God is full of love, then hell can't be a real place, right? I mean, if, if God is full of love and God desires that everyone be together in the end, then why doesn't God get what God wants? If he's God, shouldn't, he, shouldn't everybody kneel and everybody bow and everybody come in at the end because he's God? The, the objection in the small group and in the book that we've been going after says this, people can accept the idea of a loving and forgiving God, but cannot accept a God who would knowingly send people to hell. Hell seems incompatible with the idea of a loving God. Now, here's, this, is a, this is maybe a question that you've heard, a question that maybe you struggled with or had a family member struggle with or, or know someone who struggled with it. This is, a, this, is a, this is the question. This is the end question. Is hell for real? If God is love, can hell exist? And there's an issue, I think, with the concept and the ideal of, idea of hell here. And there's a question as to whether or not it's a real place. And, and, and four weeks ago, we talked about, is there one way? Yeah, well, if, if Scripture tells us that there's one way, then what happens to the people who don't choose that one way? What, what happens to them in the end? Where, where do they go? And I think that's what's so hard about this concept of hell is because we don't, we don't like it. We don't like the idea of that. We don't like the idea of eternal damnation. We don't like the idea of people who don't believe going to a place 
where there is no God and where there is eternal suffering and where this is what Scripture says. C.S. Lewis says that, that this, this idea of hell is really rebellion carried out to its fullest extent. Right? And, and it ends here. It ends with the reality of hell. I'm convinced this, this dichotomy that is offered up here in this question about if there is a loving God, then there cannot be a hell, I think is a misleading, misleading dichotomy here. People say that one, one, if God is loving, then there cannot be a hell because hell is definitely not a a loving place. It insists that God is a loving God and the end could never send people to hell, but it ignores the reality of free will that God gives us. It ignores the reality that, that the, the free will that God gives us. God could, absolutely, I believe that God is big enough and I believe that God is strong enough to be able to just snap his fingers and all of creation would be restored again. All of creation would come back and, and be new, that every single person in existence would know that God is God and would believe in Him and would worship Him and every knee would bow and every tongue could confess as we sang in that first song. God could do that, but, the, but to say that because God is loving, there could not be a hell ignores the reality of free choice that God gives us. God does not want, God is not a puppeteer in heaven directing people to do this and to not do that and to God gives us a choice and the and the choice is ours and this is the truth that I want to talk about this morning is that this our our eternal destiny depends on our response to Jesus our eternal destiny depends on our response to Jesus how could a loving God send people to hell now, I'm convinced because I understand the character of God. I understand the love of God that God does not desire anyone would go to hell. God does not desire this eternal punishment on anyone, but God, God desires that we would make the choice to come to him, that we would make the choice to, to join in with him and to believe in his son Jesus and to know that God loves us. This is the choice that we are to make. Our, our eternal destiny hinges on our response to Jesus. And people are asking, and there's nothing more important than this truth. And I'm, I just want to dive in this morning. I want to dive into Scripture and see what Scripture says about this topic and let that guide our dialogue as we begin to talk about this conversation, not just in this place this morning, but in our small groups and with those in our communities who, who are asking this same question. How, how could a loving God in hell exist? How could God send people to hell? I want to just, I want to just dive into Scripture here. Because here's the real question. Here's the question that's really on people's mind. Is hell real? Is it real? Is this the real deal or is it just something that's made up? Is it true? And the answer that scripture gives us is yes, absolutely it is true. That hell is the awful reality for those who turn from Jesus. If you turn with me to the book of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. <clears throat> I'm going to start at verse 3 and read through verse 10. But I want to just let you hear verse 8 and 9 here. Here's what it says. We ought to always thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more. And the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all, and, and all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. This should just kind of lead back to last week. Faith, hope, and love, right? 
All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to, the, to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. On the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who believe, this includes you because you believed our testimony to you. I want you to just hear verses 8 and 9 together here. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Now, people will comment back, well, this is the, Pastor Chris, this whole idea of wrath is just an Old Testament thing. This is just the, the Old Testament Bible, right? The Old Testament Bible is all about punishing, and, but the New Testament is all about love. Well, not only is this in the New Testament, right? Let's, let's, just, let's just think about what Jesus said, because the reality is that Jesus taught often and in great detail about the reality of hell, right? Here's, here's one if you turn to Matthew, Matthew chapter 10. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 10. Verse 28, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, here's Jesus using that word, that, that place. He's alluding to this as a very real place here. In Mark chapter 9, just the next book over, Matthew, Mark. Mark chapter 9. I'm going to read verse 42 to 48 here. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed then with two hands go into hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for, for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire." This is Jesus' words. These are red letters in my Bible, in your Bible, if you have a more red-letter Bible. This is Jesus talking about the reality of hell. Tim Keller, in the book that we've based this on, The Reason for God, says this, If Jesus, the Lord of love and, and author of grace, spoke about hell more often and in a more vivid, blood-curdling manner than anyone else, it must be a crucial truth. Now, Pastor Chris, I'm not sure about the language that we're using here. I'm not sure, is it, is it meant to be taken literally? Is it meant to be taken symbolically? Is it meant, uh, what is this whole, uh, is this just an idea of hell? I mean, what is this? Are we talking about a literal place of fire? Are we talking about a literal place? Are we talking about just a figurative place? And I just, just want to ask the question this morning. 
Does it matter? I mean, if it's a symbol, symbols, the whole point of a symbol is try to describe something that we don't have words for. And if these are the words that we could use to describe that, then if it's a symbol, it almost makes it worse to me. Hell is a, is a very real place, and, 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 and if it's real, though, why? Why is there this place? Well, hell, I think, is the, the natural outcome of our rebellion against God. Hell is the natural outcome of our rebellion against God. Keller, again, he, he says this in, this, in, in our book. I'm just going to read it for you because it was a paragraph, essentially. It says this, Modern people inevitably think that hell works like this. God gives us time. But if we haven't made the right choices by the end of our lives, he casts our souls into hell for all eternity. As the poor souls fall through space, they cry out for mercy, but God says, too late, you had your chance, now you will suffer. This caricature misunderstands the very nature of evil. The biblical picture is that sin separates us from the presence of God, which is the source of all joy and indeed of all love, wisdom, or good things of any sort. Since we were originally created for God's immediate presence, only before his face will we thrive, flourish, and achieve our highest potential. If we were to lose his presence totally, that would be hell, the loss of our capability for giving or receiving love or joy. C.S. Lewis called, the, the, called hell the greatest monument to human freedom. I think this is, this is just a, a great image of hell. It's the greatest monument to human freedom, he says. It is the natural outcome of our rebellion against God. He says, in one sense, the people there are successful rebels to the end. Successful rebels to the end. He goes on. There's two kinds of people. This is C.S. Lewis now. Two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. Hell is not just a place where God desires to send us. Hell is an outcome of our open rebellion against God. Hell is God leaving man alone in his self-chosen rebellion against him. This is what hell is. This is the reality of hell. But there's another reality the reality of heaven. A lot of us, we, we love to talk about heaven. <laughs> it's, it's fun to talk about heaven. We hate talking about it. It's not fun to talk about hell. But the reality is if we believe in heaven, we have to believe in hell. And if hell is the natural outcome of our rebellion against God, then heaven is the glorious reality for those who trust in God. This is what heaven is. Heaven is the glorious reality for those who trust in Jesus. This is the good news. This is the gospel, that there is a place for all of us who put our trust and our hope in Jesus Christ, who claim Jesus as our Lord and Savior, who say, thy will be done in, in my life, God. This is, I give my life to you. I give myself to you. I give everything that I am to you. Heaven is the, the glorious reality for us in that, in that instance. If you turn to me with, 
with, to Philippians chapter 3. There's a passage here, Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to start at verse 18 here. For as I as oft, I'm going to start that over. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. See, heaven is not a place of rebellion. Heaven is a place of restoration. And not just of kind of like a a semi-restoration. Heaven is a place of complete and total restoration for those who believe. If you turn to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 21, there's a a beautiful picture of heaven here. Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Again, we have this dichotomy here, but just see the, the beautiful picture of heaven. If you, the next chapter, uh, chapter 22. This is, I think, one of, this is, I, I talked about this a, a few weeks ago as we talked about our hope in the midst of suffering. And the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the, of the great street of the city, On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the, the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign. Forever and ever. I love this picture. This picture takes us all the way back to the beginning. In Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, as God creates everything, God creates Adam and He creates Eve and He puts them in the garden. And in this garden, there is the tree of life. There's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and God says, you can't eat of this tree, the knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve, of course, 
take a bite. They sin. They fall into the, the deception of the snake and they, they sin. And God kicks them out of the garden. And as they leave, he, he puts guards, flay with, I'm just going to read this, Genesis chapter 3. <clears throat> you don't have to go there, I'm just going to read this real quick. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden in Eden, cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way of the tree of life. Now I want you to see this image in Genesis chapter 3. The tree of life is not available for anyone. The tree of life is guarded by, by flaming swords, by cherubim. This is, this is off limits. Right? They have eaten from the, knowledge of, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They've eaten from that. They, God says they can't eat from the tree of life and also live forever. And so the tree of life is off limits. And we see the whole story of Scripture unfold from here. That God begins to, begins to chase his people and to try and bring them back to himself. We see it with the Egyptians, or not the Egypt, we see it with the Israelites in Egypt. God bringing, bringing his people out of Egypt and giving them the promised land. We see the people of Israel, the Israelites, they fall, they, they, they sin, and they, they walk away from God, and God constantly goes back to them and brings them back, and this is the story of Scripture. Even in the New Testament, we have people walk away from God, and then we have God send his son Jesus to come and to be and to dwell with his people and to, to show his people how much he loves them and to bring them back to him. And at the end of the book, chapter 22 is the last chapter of the Bible. We see the culmination of this and the ultimate restoration of all things. And I want you to see this, that no longer is the tree of life off limits. The tree of life is bearing fruit every single month. And the tree of life is now for the healing of the nations. The tree of life, no longer will there be any curse, Revelation 22 says. As Genesis 3, God God curses the man, and he curses the woman, and he curses the snake. And no longer will there be any curse. And I just want, I want, you, to, I want you to see this. On, the, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. They will see his face. This just brings me back to Genesis again where Adam and Eve are walking in the cool of the garden with God. God comes into the garden and, and, and asks them after they've, after they've eaten the apple, hey, where are you? Well, we, were, we ate and so we were ashamed. So who told you you were hiding? Why are, why are you hiding from me? Now, now no longer do, now we can see the face of God with our own eyes. His name will be written on our foreheads. Man, what a, the tree of life is no longer blocked off. The tree of life is available. And not only is it available, the tree of life is for the healing of the nations. The tree of life is for the restoration of all things. This is heaven. And heaven is, is the glorious reality for those who put their trust in Jesus. Amen. This is what it is. Now I think there's, you know, we have this picture of heaven sometimes. That it's the, 
It's the angels sitting on clouds with their harps and they're singing. And that's a cute little picture. But man, when I think of heaven, I think of so much more than that. Amen. Think of the restoration of all things. The, that the earth will be, there is a new earth and a new heaven. I hope I'm not stuck on a cloud with a harp. Man, I just want to be there. I, I just, I, I want to, I want to see it. And so, the choice though is ultimately ours. Will we turn from God, or will we trust in Him? Will we turn from God, or will we trust in Him? And these are the two options. And if you're not doing one, you're doing the other. Will you turn from God, or will you trust in Him? See, if you turn from God, if you turn from Christ, then, then you live without Him now, and then you die without Him forever. But if you decide to trust in Christ, then essentially you die with Christ now, and you live with Christ forever. This is the choice. And our call as believers is to encourage all of those who we meet and who ask us these questions to trust. To stop turning from God. To stop turning away from Him and living our own thing and doing our own thing and living our own way and feeling like we know better, but to trust in Christ. To live for Him. See, the reality is that there is a heaven and there is a hell. And I know that it is not God's desire that anyone would be in hell. God's desire is that every knee would bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. God's desire is that, that we all one day would be in heaven and we would all individually see the face of God with our own eyes. This is the desire of God, but it's up to you. And it's up to the people who, who are asking this question. How could a loving God send people to hell? I heard it put this way one. God, God loves you too much to force you into heaven. That you, you choose to, to, to walk away from God. God is constantly revealing himself to you, constantly showing you his love and showering you with his grace. And, and at the end of the day, if we are if we have just decided to, to rebel, then God loves you too much to bring you to a place you don't want to be in. How could a loving God send good people to hell? It's a choice. There are two realities. Heaven is real. And hell is real. It's our choice. Will you continue to turn from God? Or will you trust in Him? Man, I don't know about you, but this series has just been awesome for me. Just to dive into Scripture and to think about these questions that people are asking and to, to be able to, like I said at the beginning, I hope that you don't leave here just feeling like I just gave you all the answers, like you're going to go out and ace the test now. I hope I've just given you just some ways to be able to dialogue about all of this with people. 
that when people who don't believe ask you these questions, like, hey, why, why should I trust the Bible? Hey, is there really only one way to God? I mean, how can, how can you say there's only one way to God? Hey, why are there so many rules in Christianity? And why don't Christians follow the rules they say that they are? Why are they such hypocrites? Why, why does God allow suffering? And how, could, how, could, how can God be full of wrath and full of love at the same time? How can a good God, how can a loving God send people to hell? I, I hope this series has, has armed you a little bit just with a way to talk and a way to dialogue with people. Here's the, here's the thing that I want you to know. The first thing you need to do is listen. When people come and they ask you these questions, the last thing that they need is for you to pull out your sermon notes and to say, well, this is what my pastor says. People ask you these questions because they know you and they love you and they see what you have and maybe they want it. And there is something deeper as to why they are asking some of these questions. And sometimes one of the best things that we can do in answering some of these questions that people have is to just listen first. So I encourage you as you go from this place today that it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to have doubts. It's okay to read scripture and say, man, I don't understand this. And it's okay to seek those answers. I'm convinced, and I told you this in week one, and I'll tell you it again at the end here. I'm convinced that God encourages our questions. God, would, God loves it when we question what we read in here. And here's why I know that. Because God knows that as we question and as we seek him, we come up with the answers. And the answers bring us closer to him every single time. So I encourage you to ask questions. If you don't understand something, it's okay to not understand something. It's okay to, to not know 100% why you believe something, but, but man, would you just ask these questions and would you seek more and, and deeper understanding of your faith? The people that are asking you these questions, why can I trust the Bible? How can God send people to hell? Why does God allow suffering? They are seeking and they are asking deep questions. And if we're not asking those same deep questions, how are we going to have a conversation with these people? <laughs> Ask questions. Raise your doubts. And seek God in the midst of it. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture is in Jeremiah chapter 29. And it's not verse 11. It says this. And you will seek me you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. When you seek me, you will find me when you, when you seek me with all of your heart. My prayer for you is that we continue to seek God. 
that you would continue to seek his presence in your life, that you would continue to seek his guidance in your life, that you would continue just to seek him as a leader and director of your life, and that you would begin to, to live for him and to be able to have these conversations with non-believers and, and to be able to share your faith and to share your story and to share what God is doing in your life and to, to be a witness for him. And I think God is just going to, to just bless us tremendously this year as we continue to talk about what it means to share our faith, what it means to to bring believers in, new believers in. I think God is just going to bless us tremendously this year. Let's pray. God, we love you. And God, it's been, <clears throat> it has been awesome, awesome over the last six weeks to seek you together. God, we claim this scripture is true, that when we seek you, we will find you if we seek you with all of our hearts. God, my prayer is that we have... We have sought you out during this series with all of our hearts. God, my prayer is that as we would continue to seek you out with all of our hearts, that we would continue to grow in knowledge of you, that we would continue to grow in likeness of you, God, that as we live our lives, we look more and more like you every single day. God, would you go ahead of us, be in our workplaces, be in our homes, Wherever we are, God, would you be with us? Guide us, direct us, give us the words to say, and give us ears to hear these questions from those around us. God, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me this morning? And as you do so, let me pray this prayer of blessing over you. May our God of grace and knowledge and love and peace and joy, may this same God be with you this week. May you seek him in scripture, and as you seek him with all of your heart, may he be found by you. Go in peace and make a difference in your community. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.